0: Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. Both the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. In this episode, Mark and Paul begin to explore the crucial questions, why did God issue a command prohibiting our parents from eating from one specific tree in the Garden of Eden? And why would their disobedience result in their deaths? Let's listen in.
1: Now that we've explored what God was doing in creating Adam and Eve, Mark, I think we're finally at the point where we need to ask about this prohibition that God gave to Adam in Genesis 2.17. You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Why did God issue a command prohibiting our parents from eating from one specific tree in the Garden of Eden? And why would their disobedience result in their deaths?
2: This prohibition is very puzzling, even to a lot of Christians, Paul. Uh, Christians ask, why did God make it? And why was death the penalty for violating it? I think that getting answers to these questions is crucial if we're to understand our faith. And yet it seems to me that these questions are not very often adequately addressed and answered.
1: Yeah, So I, agree. I think in
2: trying to do that right now, we're doing something pretty important.
1: Yeah, this, this I was just going to say, it seems very important to me as well.
2: Let's remember where we've gotten to so far. Genesis 1 emphasizes our role in creation. God created us to be his earthly representatives, his visible images on earth, David marvels at the role that God gave to humankind in Psalm 8. The revised English version renders David's words like this. I think this is a particularly nice translation. Mm -hmm. David says, when I look up at your heavens, the work of your fingers, at the moon and the stars you have set in place, what is a frail mortal that you should be mindful of him? a human being, that you should take notice of him. Yet, yet you have made him little less than a god, crowning his head with glory and honor. You make him master over all that you've made, putting everything in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the wild beasts, the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, and everything that moves along ocean paths.
1: Yeah, it's one of my favorite texts, Mark. Beautiful, really humbling to read as well, isn't it?
2: It, it is. And and this bit about the fact that we are frail mortals, mm-hmm. and yet we have this position, is just rather wonderful to think about.
1: Yeah, it really is. Hard to wrap your head around, though.
2: It is. It is. <laughs> now, Genesis 2, then, ends up concentrating on specifying what it is about us that makes us capable of fulfilling this role. We've seen that it was God's breathing into the first human being, the breath, the neshama in Hebrew of life, that made him a living person. He didn't breathe that breath into any other earthly creature. And when we trace out in Scripture what it means to have this neshama, we find that it means that God has endowed us with the, cre- with the created equivalence of those aspects of himself that enable us to be his earthly images.
1: What do you mean when you say created equivalence of those aspects? What, what are you talking about? I'm not tracking. It seems
2: to me that it is um, it, it involves our having the sort of hearts and minds that are capable of comprehending what God himself wants us to do and then being capable of doing that, at least before the fall.
1: So we're made in a specific way. We're given a kind of attributes to be able to correlate to what it means to be his representatives on the earth.
2: The way that Kidner puts it at one place is that it is um, somewhat like the way that you could take a symphony and try to translate it into a poem. So, in other words, it's it's supposed to be kind of the same thing in a different register. And, of course, these are only the created equivalents. Our wisdom is nothing like God's wisdom. Right. Uh, it, it's a faint reflection. But still, it's something it's, it's equivalent, it's enough like God's wisdom that we can catch some glimpse of what he wants us to do and then know that we are
1: to do it. Yeah, the idea of a glimpse is helpful.
2: Good, good. So to repeat that, for us to have this neshama means that God has endowed us with the created equivalents of those aspects of himself that enable us to be his earthly images. And right. we alone of all earthly creatures possess understanding. That's central to these created equivalents. Because we possess understanding, God can then instruct, teach, and counsel us, just as he is portrayed to be doing in Psalm 32, eight and nine, two of my favorite verses, where partway through this wonderful Psalm, we have God himself speak and say, I will instruct you to David. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you.
1: Yeah, great verses, although I must confess there are many times I feel much more like the mule than the, <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Lord regards me that way sometimes. And of
2: course, that was David's point early in that psalm that he hadn't been willing to confess his sin to God. And so in verse five, David says that God placed his heavy hand upon him. Mm. And it's as if he was guiding him the way he would guide a mule.
1: Yeah, that's great reference. I hadn't put those two things together, but they're wonderful together, aren't they?
2: Yes, they are. So our capacity to be instructed, taught, and counseled is actually what makes us persons. We, and we alone of all the Earth's visible creatures, possess the supernaturally bestowed gift of personhood. Personhood enables us to think, to learn, to speak, to teach, to make value judgments, and thus to be free and responsible creatures. Right. It makes free and responsible decisions. It makes us, in fact, as we've said in earlier episodes, accountable for our decisions. We can be required to give an account of our choosing and acting as we do. By having breathed into our first parents' the neshama of life, or really having breathed into Adam, the Neshema of life, and then given that to Eve when God made Eve from Adam's flesh and bone. By having breathed into the first human being, the neshama of life, God made him and his descendants, including us, living spiritual creatures who are, we could put it this way, Paul, we are in the natural world, but not entirely of it.
1: But you'd still say that we're part of the natural world, in that we are natural creatures. We're biological creatures. We have bodies in the same way that other creatures have bodies. We act and we move in the same way that my dog Cooper, for example, acts and moves. Well, not exact. I don't act and move exactly like him, but but (laughs) thankfully, but I do act and move, and he acts and moves, and we're both we're both natural in that way, right?
2: No, in that sense, we are in the world, but the fact is that you are capable of being addressed in such a way that you're expected not just to follow your instincts. And Cooper's going to follow his instincts. And That's so true. you are in the natural world. You have a biological body, but you're not entirely of it. There's something more to you than just what there is to Cooper. As living spiritual creatures, into whom God has breathed the neshamah of life, we are qualitatively and not merely quantitatively different than all of the earth's other living organisms. Now, the important thing about that, Paul, is that as such, we transcend the standard scientific taxonomy of living organisms, which differentiates living organisms as belonging either to the kingdom of plants or the kingdom of animals, we belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of persons, which includes not merely us, but also the angels and God.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful, Mark. It makes me think of sort of what we've been talking about with personhood, and I wonder the degree to which we as human beings who are made as imagers of God, that we, if we give in to our instincts, then some sense, we're not living into the fullest potential of what we are intended to be. And that's because there is this emphasis in the scripture on God's desire that we transcend, to use your language, the standard, I think you put it, scientific taxonomy of living organisms. Um, When we're not doing that, when we're giving in only to our urges in the same way that my dog Cooper has an urge to eat infinite quantities of dog food and any other kind of food, when we begin to behave like him, we're actually not living in the, the fullness of what it means to be made in his image. Um, and this is because, is that—is that fair?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. In fact, actually, what, what we find is that if we are living that way, according to our instincts, that we are condemned for that. Look at Jude and Second Peter, or look at the end of Psalm 49, verse 20. Where it said that human beings and all their pomp, in other words, with all the wealth that they can have without
1: understanding are no better than the beasts. Yeah, that's great. And that's a way of just emphasizing what you're talking about, that we are qualitatively and not just quantitatively different from any of the others, earth's creatures. And it, it, that emphasizes among all of creation, our uniqueness in the way that I think that you said last time, Uh, You quoted Derek Kidner when you said that the special creation of Eve, it actually clinches the fact that there's no natural bridge from all the rest of the animals, like Cooper, for example, to us, to human beings.
2: That's exactly right, Paul. Uh, I think that once again, what's happening here, just as with the special creation of Eve, is that the biblical account is making it clear that human beings, as the pinnacle of the visible creation, are not just natural developments. They are not just quantitative enhancements of all of the Earth's other creatures. It's not just, although many naturalists think it is, it's not just that we have bigger brains than primates with more computing capacity. Uh, Instead, as being not merely natural but also spiritual creatures into whom God has breathed this breath of life, we have brains, even our brains are of a different kind. We're a special creation of God, creatures whom he's created specially, deliberately, and on purpose to fulfill a specific role in his creation.
1: And yet, Mark, it's so interesting And I think tragic in the way that many human beings, well, we settle for a lesser account of our nature. And, you know, we're quite frequently told that we're just sort of a, you know, a qualitative, that is a a quantitatively different species, not a qualitatively different species. And so we sort of settle and, you know, we say, well, you know, it's in my nature and there's nothing I can do. And so let so-and-so be so-and-so. But as you've been communicating to us, and there's been breathed into us this neshama of life, which, as you've said, makes us capable of being in personal relationships, right? And, And here, as you've said, not just with other human beings, but like Adam and Eve, we're also able to be in a relationship with God. So with that as backdrop, would you please go on a little bit further and tell us Uh, As we turn to this next command, why did God command Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil?
2: It's because this command is a prohibition, Paul. It introduces a new element into our situation. If you think about it, God could instruct us, he could teach us, he could counsel us, and he can even command us without ever prohibiting us. So in fact, In Genesis 1, after God blessed Adam and Eve, he issued a command to them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That, of course, is known as the creation mandate. It's a command. It's in the imperative in the Hebrew to take good care of the earth and its creatures, By their obeying this mandate, Adam and Eve would be God's visible images on earth because they would be treating the animals and our earthly environment as God himself would treat it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Please go on.
2: Well, the next verse in chapter 1 of Genesis may seem as if it's a prohibition, But in fact, grammatically, it's not. The next verse of chapter one reads, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. But the Hebrew grammar makes it clear that that's not a prohibition. It is just a statement of fact. It's merely stating what God, in fact, had done for them. He had given these things to Adam and Eve to be their food. Then the next time God is recorded addressing anyone, he's addressing Adam because Eve hasn't yet been created. And he starts his address by telling Adam to eat from all of the trees in the garden. He says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. And that, as we've already noted, is in fact part of a command. God was commanding Adam to wander throughout the garden and take pleasure tasting each of its fruits. Now that's wonderful. It God is was brilliant. commanding, urging Adam mm-hmm. to head out and enjoy the garden that he had right. created for him. As one of the psalmists puts it, God's precepts direct us to walk in wide places, to walk in wide places. God's precepts open up rather than close the world for us. But then, then God added, you may eat of all of the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You must not eat its fruit, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That is a prohibition and a very strong one. In the Hebrew, it has exactly the same grammatical form as the you shall nots in the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. God was Mm -hmm. categorically declaring to Adam, and of course Adam was supposed to tell Eve that you must never eat from this
1: tree. Mark, if I could ask you a question at this point and then maybe make an observation. If I'm understanding you, when you are talking about the the trees and the plants that God describes in verse twenty one twenty nine, God is saying that he's given all these things to human beings for their, for their benefit, for their use. But then right. when you get to chapter great. So then, but when, then when you get to chapter two, verses 16 and 17, you find a, a very broad positive command in 216 and a strong exceptional kind of command. That's a negative command in 217. Is that, is that a fair right. summary of the way it's laid out? Okay, good. Well, that yep. reminds me, and my observation is this reminds me a lot of the contracts that will engage in drafting and editing and negotiating in my practice as a lawyer, where you'll have recitals on the front end. They're very similar to verse 129, which sort of describe the state of things, in this case, with respect to the state of food and its benefit for human beings. And then when you get to 216, there is a broad permissible kind of set of uh, requirements or obligations or benefits, in this case benefits, provided to human beings for their enjoyment. But there is a strong exception to that. In our contract setting, We would you would typically see a phrase that says something like, everything in this paragraph, notwithstanding, you must not do this. So that 217 is a very much a notwithstanding kind of a clause. Is that a, a fairly... Accurate analogy?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it's very accurate. I think we might call the notwithstanding a kind of fencing of the permissions that God has given. We've got all of these
1: permissions, that.
2: which give Adam and Eve all this room to do all sorts of things, and in fact, command them to do some of these things, to enjoy uh, the fruits of the earth. But then those permissions are protected by means of this prohibition in 217, which makes explicit what they must not do.
1: Yeah, and that's very important. You know, and again, to, to run the risk of continuing the, the legal metaphor here, one of the things that you use uh, a notwithstanding clause to, to, to accomplish is to mitigate risk to the parties. There's this vast expression of what they can do, but now there's a severe warning of what they must not do. They must not risk take on the risk of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that risk is great because if they eat of it, they will die. But as right. you say, right. So but as you say, this is an entirely new element in the situation of our first parents. And if we heed what we heard Gerhard von Rod, say about the creation account last week that nothing, and now I'm quoting from Von Rod, is here by chance. Everything must be considered carefully, deliberately, and precisely. What is said here is intended to hold true entirely and exactly as it stands then if on Rod is right there, if we take listen to him there, then the introduction of this new element into humanity's situation must be pretty important. In the same way that a notwithstanding clause is very important in a contract, and so I'm left with the question: Well, Mark, why? Why, <laughs> Mark? after granting Adam so much freedom regarding eating from the trees in the garden, does God add this specific prohibition? Why didn't God just issue positive commands like the creation, eat, eat some oranges, eat some lemons, grow and enjoy and eat some seed and wheat. As God said, after giving the creation mandate, I mean, doesn't he know that when you put those notwithstandings in there, there's ultimatums where human beings are involved, that that's risky. I mean, if we want to avoid conflict between ourselves and others, I guess, isn't the best course just to avoid requiring to have people do what they don't want to do?
2: I I think that's right, Paul. So there must be good reasons why God issued this prohibition to Adam, as well as why he gave the Ten Commandments, all but one of which either is or includes a prohibition. And, of course, all but one of the Ten Commandments is reaffirmed in the New Testament. So why does God issue prohibitions? What I want to suggest is that it's because compliance with a prohibition, unlike compliance with a permission, can be decisive and complete When God commanded Adam to wander through the garden, taking pleasure in the taste of all of its fruits, Adam's compliance to that command would always have been a matter of, we could say, interpretation and degree. So maybe on a given day, Adam might have spent his time working in the garden, which, of course, God had told him to do, and not spend much time at all wandering around the garden tasting new fruits. Yet the very fact that God has created us in his image, to say nothing of the fact that he now sustains us moment by moment, means that we are his possession who are meant to give ourselves wholly to him. Mm -hmm. That's not a matter of interpretation or degree. Our Lord made that really clear by his very clever reply to the question of the Pharisees, whether the Israelites should pay taxes to Caesar. He asked them to give him a coin, and then he held it up, asking whose image is on this coin? And of course, the image was Caesar's. And so our Lord says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And of course, the subtext, what he doesn't say, but he obviously means, the subtext is that we bear God's image, so we must give ourselves back to God. And we aren't to give God just a bit of ourselves, just a bit of our lives. We're to give him our complete selves. We're to give ourselves to him wholly, completely, and unreservedly.
1: OK, so, Mark, if I'm getting you right here, what you're saying is that prohibitions give us a kind of objective standard against which we can measure our compliance. So, right, Mark, if if you tell me in our friendship in our relationship, do not lie to me, do not lie to me in our relationship, do not lie because you're a friend to me and then I lie to you, that negative prohibition has created a condition where you can show me there's been a clear violation of the prohibition. Is that right?
2: That's right. If I say, Paul, I'd like you to listen to me carefully and seriously, that, of course, can include degrees of care and seriousness, but lying Mm -hmm. doesn't include degrees. Either you lie or you don't. Right. It's interesting, Paul. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, this prohibition in Genesis 2, as well as the you-shall-nots that are found in the Ten Commandments, have a specific form. They use the Hebrew word lo, which means that they are meant to be stated negatively rather than positively, and they're meant to be taken as categorical. In other words, as always holding for us, as always prohibiting us from doing this or that, as brooking no exceptions. So it's not merely that at any given moment you are either obeying the commandment or breaking it. It's also that there is to be no moment when you don't obey it. There is to be no moment when you are permitted or allowed to break it?
1: A couple of reactions. One, um, that seems both intense and extreme when you say (laughs) there is no moment when you are permitted or allowed to break it. So that's one reaction I have. But the second uh, reaction really is to take us back to our original question. And that's why 217, Mark, why (laughs) does God, prohibit Adam from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs>
2: well, I hate to have to say it, Paul, but this episode is going to be a cliffhanger.
1: Mark, All- that's not fair. That-
2: <laughs> Mark, come on. All I want to do right now at the end of this episode is to suggest that while Adam and as soon as she was created Eve were conversing with God in the garden, they weren't yet fully committed to him. In order to be fully committed to him, they would have to be wholly, completely, and unreservedly committed to him and all of his ways. They'd have to be categorically committed to him, categorically committed to never violating the prohibition of their eating from the forbidden tree. Their commitment to him could not be a matter of degree. They weren't to give God just a bit of themselves and their lives. They needed to choose to love him while forsaking all others. And that, as we shall see in the next session, is why God issued his prohibition against their eating from the forbidden tree.
1: Wow, wow, that's uh, that's a lot, Mark. Thank you. Um, well, we've got a lot of questions, obviously, lingering here. So you know, thanks for that. Thanks for the cliffhanger <laughs> that you've got us looking forward to. Uh, what's next? And appreciate we appreciate everything you've said so far. It really is. You know, kidding aside, it's wonderful to talk about these things. It's glorious to deal with God's Word in this way. In the very obviously careful way that you're doing here. So we really do appreciate all your observations, your interaction with the biblical text, all of your comments so far. And we are actually eagerly looking forward to next time and the answer to this question. And we'll see you then, Mark.
2: Thanks, Paul. This is just wonderful stuff to think about.
0: As we begin to discuss the question of why God prohibited Adam in Genesis 2.17 from eating from the tree of good and evil, we see that it hinges on the fact that we human beings were created in God's image specially and deliberately so that we could fulfill a specific role in his creation. While God also gave Adam a positive command regarding his freedom to eat from any other tree in the garden. His prohibiting Adam from eating from one specific tree gave Adam an objective standard by which he could be obedient. And it is with us as it was for Adam. Because God has created us and sustains us moment by moment, we are to give ourselves back to him, wholly, completely, and unreservedly by doing all that he commands. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Zusanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.